Well, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel according to John, chapter 1. The Gospel according to John, chapter 1. With Brother Ken being out this morning, I felt it probably best to leave John 16 uh, for him to, to deal with next week and spend some time this morning in John 1 focusing on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So we'll be looking at John chapter 1, beginning in verse 29. And if you found your way to John chapter 1, I invite you to stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. The scripture says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me. Because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, The one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. <clears throat> Being that we're picking up in the middle of an account this morning, early in John's gospel, it might be helpful if we start back at the beginning of the chapter and think about what John is trying to communicate to us in his gospel. Uh, he writes at the end of the gospel in John chapter 20 that all of these things are written so that we may know and believe that there is eternal life in and through Jesus Christ. And so we want to filter all of John's gospel through that statement uh, that this is to know who Jesus is and that through him we would have eternal life. In other words, John is writing to reveal to us and teach to us something about the life of Jesus and his person, who he was, and the work that he accomplished for us. And so early in John's gospel, he begins by communicating to us that he is the word made flesh. He is God in the flesh. He communicates to us that he is the light revealed out of darkness. He reveals to us that he is the only begotten son of God come in the flesh. And then as the narrative of John's gospel begins, the first character onto the scene is not necessarily Jesus, but it's John the Baptist who earlier in, these, in the verses prior to where we read is called the forerunner, the, the, the voice crying out in the wilderness, the one uh, preparing the way for the Lord. He's the one predicting and prophesying the coming of the Son of God in the flesh, the Messiah who is going to save the world from their sins. And so John the Baptist is preaching and he's explaining who he is and he's explaining what his relationship is to the Messiah. And then Jesus walks onto the scene and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. This is the one that I was telling you about. And so John the Baptist is communicating to us this morning in these verses, on the one hand, what man's greatest need is, and on the other hand, how Jesus is the answer to that problem, how he is the answer to our greatest needs. I wonder if you were to poll the world around us what they would say the greatest need of mankind is. If you were to, if, if CNN was to send out a poll and say, hey, what's the greatest need in the world? What's the greatest problem that mankind faces? I wonder what it might say, what kind of answers would come back. I expect it would be things such as uh, disease or pandemics. That's what's readily on all of our minds. We just wish this would all go away. It's certainly a problem. 
some might would say that it's poverty or, or world hunger, that if we could put an end to that, then, uh, then, then everything would be fine. Some might would say that it's, it's some form of world peace, that if we could get all governments on the same page, then, then everything would be a utopian bliss and everything would be just fine. But John the Baptist communicates something else to us entirely in these verses. What John the Baptist is communicating to us is that all of those things are mere symptoms of the greatest need of mankind. They're mere symptoms of the greatest problem, which John the Baptist says is sin. You see, all other problems are consequences of the curse brought on humanity and the earth by sin. If you were to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, we'd read of the account of God creating Adam. And then just a couple chapters later, Adam falls into sin. And God curses the earth and he curses mankind uh, in sin. And so that from Adam on, all of us are born in our iniquity and born in sin under this curse. And so the entire story of the Bible is showing us that the greatest problem we have is this innate sin that we have because of Adam. And the entire story of the Bible is trying to show us how the resolution to that problem is found only in Jesus Christ, our second Adam. And so if the greatest problem that mankind faces is sin, John the Baptist shows us two ways that Jesus addresses our greatest need. He addresses our greatest need first as the Lamb of God. And the second thing that we'll see later on is that he addresses our greatest need as the Son of God. But let's look again at verse 29 and see how Jesus, as the Lamb of God, addresses our greatest need. It says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I hope the very first question that pops into your mind when we're reading these verses is, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Lamb of God? Because it's wonderful for us to say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But unless we understand what it means for Jesus to be our Lamb, then it's hard for us to comprehend how it is that Jesus is our Lamb and how being our Lamb takes away our sin and addresses our greatest problem. You see, if we were to think back through the Old Testament, we would see that the, the imagery of a Lamb is a very prominent Old Testament Im imagery. Go again, back to Adam and Eve. When Adam sinned, God comes and addresses the problem. He curses the earth. He curses Adam. And, and then he makes a gospel promise saying that from the seed of the woman, there's going to be one who would come who would crush the head of the serpent and his heel would be bruised by the serpent. But after that, what does God do? God takes an animal sacrifice and he sacrifices it on behalf of Adam and Eve to make covering for their nakedness and atonement for their sin. Now, if we read that account without reading the rest of the Bible, we don't know what kind of animal it was that God sacrificed for Adam and Eve, but it probably was a lamb. If we were to continue reading in Genesis, we would come to the account of Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham is going up with Isaac to, uh, to sacrifice him. God says, go and sacrifice your one son to me. And so Abraham takes Isaac and they're going up to the mountain and, and Isaac asks some questions. And it says in Genesis 22, then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, my father. And he replied, here I am, my son. Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. And so already in these two accounts in Genesis, we see on the one hand the idea of God providing the lamb. 
And Adam did not provide his sacrifice, nor did Abraham or Isaac provide their own sacrifice, but God provided the sacrifice. God provided the lamb for them. But we also see this idea of a substitution, that in, in this account in Genesis, Isaac does not bring his own sacrifice, but there is a sacrifice that is offered in his place. Isaac is not sacrificed. He is not killed that day. Right as the knife is coming to be plunged into his chest, God says, wait, Abraham, there's a ram over in the thicket. And so they take the ram and they sacrifice it in the place of Isaac. God provided the sacrifice as a substitution for him. This continues throughout the Old Testament. We could read of, of all of the law of God as he institutes the, the sacrifices and things and, and, and the, uh, the different sacrifices that had to be offered in the temple. The sacrificial system was very uh, tedious and, and meticulous. And day by day and year after year, there were lambs sacrificed in the temple as a perpetual reminder of the people's needs of forgiveness of God and a substitute for their sins. The first institution of this was at the Passover. When God is redeeming his people who were enslaved in Egypt, he, he's calling his people out of Egypt, out of their slavery. He's redeeming them at a price. And, and on the night before, he institutes the Passover in which there was a lamb for every family sacrificed for them. The blood spread over the, over the door mantle and they consumed the meal together. And that this lamb, what it accomplished for them was the abatement of the wrath of God. That as the death angel came through the camp, that, it, that God's wrath would pass over any of them who had shed the blood of the lamb and spread it over their mantle. The lamb was sacrificed in their place. And so JT read for us from Isaiah 53. And Isaiah picks up on all of this language from the Old Testament. But he recognizes that a mere animal is not a sufficient substitute for a man. And so what Isaiah teaches us in Isaiah 53 is that it will be a man who will come as our lamb. The Messiah will come and lay down his own life as a lamb led before the slaughter so he will not open his mouth. That it will be upon him our iniquities will be laid. Our transgressions will be paid for by this man. But as we get to the end of the Old Testament, they have a solid understanding that they need a lamb and that they need a substitute. But the question is, where is he? Who is he going to be? And when is God going to send this promised deliverer? If no mere animal can take the place of a human as a sacrifice, animals are ultimately insufficient. And so everyone at the end of the Old Testament recognizes that God himself must provide a lamb. But where is he? And so what John the Baptist is saying, behold... Here is the lamb. Here is the one who is, who is sufficient to substitute for your sins. Here is the one sent from God to die for us, to take away the sins of the world. Here is the lamb. One person that I read in studying this passage said this, as we study the sacrificing of lambs in the Old Testament, we see a progression that is culminated with Jesus as the lamb. At first, the rule was a lamb for each sinful person. This is why Abraham needed a lamb in the place of Isaac. Later, as the time for Jesus' coming drew nearer, a lamb could be offered for a whole family, as in the Passover. Then under the Old Covenant, a lamb was offered for the entire nation of Israel. But finally, 
Jesus is the lamb for the whole world, one who as the son of God has blood of infinite worth and is able to pay the debt of every sinner. It matters that Jesus is our lamb. This is what it means for Jesus to be our lamb. He's the one that's foreshadowed and prophesied about and predicted coming in the Old Testament. And John the Baptist says, here he is. But why do we need a lamb? Well, John the Baptist says it's because of sin. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is our Lamb to take away our sin. And to downplay sin in the the grand story of redemption is to downplay the gospel altogether. Sin is, is, is the main reason that Jesus came to die. We've broken God's moral law and we have transgressed Him and rebelled against Him. And this verse is the greatest declaration of who Jesus is before, for us because it declares why Jesus came. We are enemies of God. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. We are slaves of sin. We are children of wrath. We are rebels against the will of God. And that's why Jesus came as our lamb. We are condemned and guilty, and yet Christ is a lamb that takes away the sins of the world. He is the sufficient sacrifice. He is the one who removes our sin. He takes away our guilt. Uh, The the book of Psalms says that he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. He removes our sins. He expiates it. He takes it away. But at the same time, Jesus as our lamb appeases the wrath of God. The death of Christ, as it were, was a pleasing aroma to the Lord in that it appeased his wrath that was meant for us. Jesus is our lamb, and that's how he takes away our sin. Now, some of you know from time to time I like to have a theology word of the day or a theology concept of the day so that my preaching doesn't get too technical. I like to limit that as often as I can to get really technical. But what the early church has historically referred to this as is a penal substitutionary atonement. A penal substitutionary atonement. Now, that's what it means for Jesus to be our lamb, but but let's break that down a little bit because that's why Jesus came to die. Some would say that Jesus came just to conquer Satan. There are theories of the atonement that that say that Jesus just came to defeat Satan, and Jesus certainly did that upon the cross of Calvary. Others would say the only reason that Jesus came was as a moral example to us. We heard from John a few weeks ago uh, that the greatest love that a man can have is to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus certainly accomplished a moral example for us on the cross. But if those are the only reasons that Jesus came to die, then we are still left with the greatest problem that we face, and that is our sin. No, Jesus died as a penal substitutionary atonement. Now, what I mean by penal is is legal. There is guilt. We are criminals before God. In, In God's legal system, we are transgressors. And so there is a need for a substitute on our behalf. God in his divine providence has introduced the idea of substitution in the legal system that one can die for another. And Jesus is an atonement. Now, that word atonement, you can get pretty complex with the definition or you can get really simple. And so uh, in order to help us understand why Jesus died, I want to lean toward the simplicity of one definition. If you're trying to define atonement, you can say it this way. It's at one meant. The idea of atonement is essentially reconciliation. That atonement accomplishes reconciliation between God and man. 
God's wrath must be appeased and our sin and our guilt must be removed. And the only way to accomplish that is by a blood sacrifice. Leviticus 17.11 says this, For the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it is in the lifeblood that makes atonement. And so in the person of Christ and in his work upon the cross of Calvary, he is our lamb. He does not offer the blood of bulls and goats, but he offers a better sacrifice. The book of Hebrews says that all of those sacrifices were offered time after time and of time, and they were not sufficient. But Jesus, he offers a once-for-all sacrifice in his own death. And so in the death of Christ, we have forgiveness. We have the appeasement of the wrath of God. We have forgiveness of our sins. Jesus is the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Now, lest we be tempted to think in terms of universalism or that that means that Jesus uh, takes away the sins of every single person in the world, let's understand that John is speaking to a primarily Jewish audience. And they understood, hey, Jesus or or the Messiah is going to come and he's going to take away the sins of our people, ethnic Israel. And John says, oh, no. What Jesus has come to accomplish is far greater than just taking care of one single nation on the earth. But he will have a people of every tongue, tribe, and nation. He will be the, sin, the, the lamb that takes away the sins of the world, Jew and Gentile included. Jesus is the sacrifice for all peoples. And so I ask you this morning, do you know Christ in that way? Do you know Christ as your lamb. It was once said that Charles Spurgeon uh, was planning to preach uh, one Sunday morning from this text and in the building that he was going to preach in, he went one Saturday afternoon to test the acoustics of the room. We don't have to do that. We have microphones. But in testing the acoustics of the room, Charles Spurgeon uh, exclaims from the pulpit, behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And there was one man who worked on the building in, in the back. And he thought it was a voice from heaven crying out to him, Behold the Lamb of God which takes the Lord. And he falls on his face there and he cries out for forgiveness. And it wasn't until later in his life that he understood and learned that it was Spurgeon actually preaching, testing the acoustics of the room. But dear sinner, if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ, the challenge to you in this text in the 21st century is the same as it was in the 19th century for in the days of Spurgeon. And it's the same as it was in the first century. The challenge to you from this text is behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. If you do not know him, then your sins are still upon you and you will face God's judgment and endure his wrath for all eternity. But the good news of the gospel is that in the person and work of Christ, God has provided a lamb for you. Would you receive him as your lamb this morning? Would you accept him as your lamb? Would you trust him as the only fitting sacrifice and substitute for you? Do you see that as your greatest need this morning? Or are you thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow? Are you thinking about what's going to happen years from now? Are you thinking about how you can make your life better now? Your greatest need is to have your sin addressed, else it will be addressed for all eternity under the wrath of God. Oh, behold the Lamb of God. 
But dear Christian, I would remind you that Christ as your lamb matters for you as well. Sometimes I think we think about the atonement of Christ and the death of Christ only strictly in matters of justification. That yes, he died for my sins and now I'm justified and I have a right standing before God. But from this point forward, it's all on my shoulders to make it work and to do the right thing. And in all of these things, Christ is still your lamb. The idea of atonement, this idea of reconciliation to God is, is what we live in as Christians. The gospel is not just for back then, it's for every day and every day in the future. Because in Christ, as our lamb, we have for us secured unending peace with God. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us not be tempted to think that somehow we've been justified by faith, but now we have to work somehow to earn the favor of God. I was having a conversation recently with someone about the way that we were brought up in our raising and how ingrained legalism really is in our culture and in our mindsets. We know, okay, well, I'm a sinner and I've got to be forgiven by Christ, but now I've got to, I've got to put on the face and I've got to, I've got to do the work and I, I've got to somehow uh, make sure that everyone, make sure that God is pleased with me first. And if I can't accomplish that, at least everybody I know when I go see them on Sunday morning thinks that I'm better than what I really am. Dear Christian, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that we, we live in light of justification. We have unending peace with God. We don't have to secure peace with God by our good works now or ever. Nor do we have to secure some kind of right standing with one another. True gospel living means that we can be really honest with one another about where we struggle in our own personal walk with Christ. And we can look to Christ and say, but he is still my lamb. The sins that I've committed in my past, the sins that I commit every day, and the sins that I will commit for the rest of my life are covered under the blood of Jesus. And we can rejoice in that together. Christ is always our lamb, and we have unending peace with God. But it matters for us because it is then that knowledge that Christ is our lamb that gives us motivation to resist and to flee temptation. You see, we often give in to temptations to sin, but it is the knowledge of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross of Calvary as the Lamb of God for us that gives us the strength and the motivation to resist temptation. Why would we do the very things that caused us to need a Lamb in the first place? Meditation upon this truth will help us in our walk daily to live more faithfully and obediently to Christ because we are reminded constantly of what Christ had to pay, the price that he gave so that we could be free from our sins. Why would we continue to do the things that caused him to die in the first place? But it matters for us as well because it gives us hope when we do sin. 1 John 2 says this, My little children... I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. You know, I'm reminded of, of an account of one of my favorite books in the Pilgrim's Progress. I, I, I feel certain that I've given all of you this illustration more than once in my life, but it is probably the most helpful illustration about the cross of Calvary that I can think of. 
And so in the Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, Christian, is on his journey to the celestial city. He's on his way to heaven. He's glory bound. And he comes to the wicket gate representing Jesus. And he's in Christ. And he's given a scroll as a confirmation of assurance of that he is in Christ. And yet, he still carries a burden on his back. He is burdened down and he can hardly walk. He's carrying the guilt of his sin. He's, he's carrying this weight around with him all the time, even though he's in Christ. But it is not until he comes to the foot of the cross and he looks up at the cross, this burden rolls off of his back. It rolls down the hill into an empty tomb. And it says, and I saw it no more. Dear Christian, if you are wrestling with the weight of the guilt of your sin, cast it upon Jesus and know that he is your lamb. You can rest in knowing that you have peace with God. You can rest in knowing that you have motivation to resist and flee temptation. And you can rest knowing that there is hope for you that the wrath of God is not going to come upon you again when you sin. Because Jesus is your lamb. But finally, dear Christian, Christ as your lamb matters for you because it sustains your faith as you follow Jesus. In the second part of the Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Christian's wife, Christiana, she's traveling with her children, and she has other traveling companions with her, and she goes through some of the same things that Christian goes through in the first part of Pilgrim's Progress. And then one day they have a particularly bad day where one of their traveling companions has to fight against the devil, and then they come upon these roaring lions, and they are terrified and afraid, and they finally make it to safety at the porter's house. And when they get to the porter's house, they're just ready to go to bed. I mean, it has been a long day, and they are ready to crash. But the people of the house say, no, 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 it's not time for you to go to bed. There's something else that you need to do. And this is what they say to them. It says, now, because it was somewhat late, and because the pilgrims were weary with their journey, and also made faint with the sight of the fight and of the terrible lions, they desired as soon as might be to prepare to go to rest. Nay, said those of the family, Refresh yourselves first with a morsel of meat. Listen to this. For they had prepared for them a lamb. Now, dear Christian, what John Bunyan is trying to communicate to us in the Pilgrim's Progress is that you never outgrow the gospel. You continue to feed on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We always look to Christ. Our rest is in Christ. It's easy for us to think like the world and say, hey, I just need to get away for a while. I need to just put my feet up and watch some TV and kick back. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things. But if that is a substitute for your relationship with Jesus Christ, you misunderstand what it means for Christ to be your lamb. For more than you need rest, you need Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, that's why we partake of the Lord's Supper. We are feeding on Christ and remembering Him as our Lamb. That's why we come to worship every Sunday on the Lord's Day, so that we can be reminded and, and brought back to the, the, the focal point of everything that we are about, and that is Christ. Dear Christian, Christ is always your Lamb. Christ is your Lamb. But the final thing that I want us to see this morning is that Christ addresses our greatest need as the Son of God. He addresses our need as the Lamb of God, but I also want us to see in verses 30 through 34, He addresses our greatest need as the Son of God. Listen to these verses again. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. 
I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now remember, John the Baptist is preaching to a group of people, and he's trying to deflect all of the attention off of him. They're asking me, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the Messiah? Who are you? And he's trying to say, no, 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 I'm none of those things. I'm just the forerunner. I'm just the voice crying in the wilderness because there is one coming. And by the way, here he is. But beyond just being our lamb, John teaches us something essential about the person of Jesus, that he is the son of God. Which, by the way, is what John the Apostle has been trying to show us the entire chapter 1 of John's gospel. He is the Word of God come in the flesh. He's the only begotten Son of God. That He is pre-incarnate, pre-existent. He is a co-eternal with the Father. That He is all of these things. And that He is also God in the flesh. You see, Jesus' Godness is essential to our salvation. I've said this before and I'm going to say it again this morning. Only a man could die for the sins of the world. Excuse me. Only a man should die for the sins of the world, but only a man, only God could die for the sins of the world. And so Jesus Christ come as God in the flesh. The Nicene Creed says it this way, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence of the Father. And so Jesus, the Son of God, comes to save us from our sins and reveal the true nature of God to us. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the full revelation of the deity. In him, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. And in the person of Jesus, we see the face of God. And he comes to endure his own wrath, to endure God's wrath against us, to save us from our sins. And the way John knows this is because the Spirit of God descends on him and rests on him like a dove. This is a reference to Jesus' baptism, by the way, which we don't have much of an account of here in the Gospel of John. But in Matthew's Gospel, we know the account that Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and is then tempted of the devil, and, and he shows himself to be a faithful, obedient son where Israel failed. And then he comes out of the wilderness, and he goes to be baptized, and, and there on the day of his baptism, he goes down into the water, and as he comes back up, the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove, and the Father speaks out of heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This speaks of his anointment. This speaks of his uh, 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 calling, his sentness to do the will of God on our behalf. But John seems to make something extra or more out of the Spirit of God descending on Jesus like a dove. And the question is, why a dove? I think Augustine has it right when he says this. One author likened the Spirit's form... Or excuse me, he likens the spirit's form of a dove uh, to the olive branch, the dove that brought an olive branch to Noah. St. Augustine says this, As a dove did at that time bring tidings of the abating of water, so doth it now of the abating of the wrath of God 
upon the preaching of the gospel. What Augustine is trying to say is that the fact that the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus and remains on him makes him different than any other person in the entirety of the Old Testament in which the Spirit of God would come upon them and then remove himself from them. We see that in the judges. We see that in the kings, uh, that there are many who were filled with the Spirit and they accomplished great things for God during that time, but eventually that fades. But John is saying Jesus is unique and that the Spirit of God descends on him and rests on him. The Spirit descends on him and remains with him. That he is the final fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophets. He's different than the judges. He's different than the kings. He's different than the prophets. Jesus is the final word on the matter. And he has come bringing promises of the abatement of the wrath of God. That the wrath of God is satisfied. And just as that dove brings the promise uh, that the wrath of God is over to Noah when he's in the ark, so the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus shows us that it is in him, in this person, and in the work that he will accomplish on the cross of Calvary, the wrath of God will be eternally satisfied. Brothers and sisters, it matters that Jesus is the Son of God. It matters that He is our Lamb, and it matters that He is the Son of God. For in Him, the wrath of God is satisfied for all eternity because He come from heaven to do that very thing for us. Jesus is the Son of God. And therefore, we worship Him, and we praise Him, and we gather together as brothers and sisters under the gospel to rejoice in who He was and what He has done for us. The person and the work of Jesus Christ is so vitally important to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's so vitally important to who we're going to be as a congregation that these truths that you are hearing this morning should never leave our minds. Not just on Sundays, but Mondays through Saturdays. It shapes our very existence because the Son of God come from heaven to be our Lamb to take away our sin. Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to rejoice in that this morning. We sing praises because of that this morning. And we glorify the name of God because of that this morning. I would ask you one last time, do you know Christ as your Lamb? Do you believe that he is the son of God come from heaven in whom you may have eternal life? If you do not know him in that way this morning, if you're still looking to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do your own thing and, and please God yourself, that will not abate the wrath of God. Your works will not satisfy the wrath of God and you will endure it for all eternity. But if you will come before Christ and you will receive him as your perfect righteousness, and you will uh, place all of your sins at the feet of Jesus and say, I cannot do anything with these. Can you save me from them? Christ will be your lamb. The very son of God come from heaven will be your lamb. Dear Christian, rejoice that Christ is your lamb. Let's pray. God in heaven, we come before you thanking you for the gospel. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that you substituted your own son for us, that we might have forgiveness, that we might, our sins might be atoned for, that we might be reconciled back to you. We criminals could be forgiven and made right before you. 
Father, help us to rest in this. Help us to know this. Help it to affect the way that we live, that we might... Uh, that it might be our motivation to flee sin, that it might be uh, a reminder of the peace that we have for God, that it might be hope for us when we do sin, and it might sustain our faith as we live for Christ. Lord, may this truth change who we are. In Jesus' name, amen.